In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made through him. And though the world was made through him, sorry. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Christina. Last week we talked about new creation. Uh, sketching this idea that what God is doing in Christ, especially in Easter and resurrection, is bringing all things back to life, creating something new in the world. And the way this happens is based on the old pattern out of Genesis. Today, we're going to talk about temples and tabernacles and bodies and Jesus and the earth. It's the whole thing again. It feels like every Sunday for the next four weeks, we're just going to start in Genesis and we're going to go to Revelation. And we're going to do it over and over and over again. Uh, partly because often the way that we read the scriptures is very piecemeal, where we'll take a scripture out, a verse out, sometimes even a word out, and we'll ask, like, what does this thing mean? But all of this is given to us inside of this larger story that's being told that we call God's interaction with creation and with humanity. And to look at it in its entirety, every once in a while, in this broad sweeping fashion, it gives us a better sense of where things have been going and where they are headed now. So that's what we're going to do again today, if you will bear with me. Uh, so we're going to start with a prayer, and then we're going to all grab our Bibles and we're going to get started. So would you join me in prayer? Dear God, we don't invite you into this space. We ask that you would illuminate our own hearts and minds so that we would be aware that you are already here. In between us and our connections, healing the parts of us that are broken, knitting us together to be your people. Stay with us through these next minutes, days, and weeks. Ground us in your larger reality. This is our prayer. Amen. 
Paul may need your help pushing the slides forward. So I'll let you know when we're heading to the next one and we'll get there. Okay. If you have a Bible, grab it. We're going to open up to John one, which is the reading we heard from Christina today. And we are going to dive in because we have lots to do today. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Let's see the next slide. The word for word is the word logos. And it is a, uh, a fancy Greek word that we're going to talk about a little bit today as we get started. This idea of logos, uh, which means, oh, this is one of these like huge terms in Hellenism that is given to the early Christians as they are writing their scriptures. So the Old Testament, let's do a little bit of research here. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew language, and then over time it gets translated into the Greek language, it's called the Septuagint. That is probably what the early church had when they would read the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, they would read it in the Greek version. And so then when the New Testament writers sit down to write down this story of Jesus, they write it in the language of the context or the culture at the time, which is Greek. Now this term logos is this loaded term in Greek that gets kind of imported into the Christian story into God's story dealing with creation. And here's what it means. It comes from this guy named Philo uh, and makes its way into John's gospel. Logos becomes or is known as this kind of animating principle in the world. Uh, it, It partly means speech. So language is really important. You can even hear, we talked about last week that John 1 sounds a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. It's somehow this new creation story being told in the same way as the old creation story. And in Genesis 1, the way that God creates is with speech. Other cultures had other ways of talking about the creation of the universe. Most of them talked about creation through violence and struggle and battle. But our story is given to us in this There is no conflict here. There is just God speaking into the world existence. God spoke and it was. And God spoke and it was. And so when these early Christian writers decide to try and say what it is God is doing in Christ, they use this language of speech and logos. Logos is this high intellectual reasoning capacity that humanity has. Over time, it gets married to ideas of dualism, which basically means that there are sort of two spheres in the universe, and those two spheres should have not much to do with each other. When you start to talk about people who are evil or people who are good, that's dualistic language. When you start to think about things that are spiritual or things that are material or fleshly, that's dualistic language. And so this word logos fits into that old split in Greek thought. We might know it as Platonism from Plato. This all matters and we'll get to it in just a moment. Because there is this other word in Greek called sarx. And sarx is the word for flesh. It's the word for this material reality. And Greek thinkers at the time would have known that logos has nothing to do with sarx. Right? You knew this coming in today. No? Logos has nothing to do with sarks. These two should stay separate. It's like oil and water or like cats and dogs or I don't know. All of those things that do not mix well. They are to stay apart. In fact, one sarks pollutes or defiles the other logos. You are to keep them far away from one another. And so when John tells his gospel, 
the story of Jesus. He tells it already in this deeply scandalous way. Because if you were a reader at the time, you would be reading this and you would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was there with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. This sounds familiar. You would nod along. You would, you would applaud. You would say, yes, absolutely. This is exactly how we understand Logos. Logos and reason and wisdom, we can fit all of those into a box that we call spiritual, high-minded things. And then you get the fateful verse, verse 14. And the word, the Logos, became flesh and lived among us. Next slide. These two do not go together and yet go one more. They do in Christ. Right away, in the thinking of the time, Jesus the Christ exists in scandal. Exists in the intersection of two forces in the world that have nothing to do with one another. They are not supposed to belong together. And yet here they are joined together in Jesus the Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are going to spend the rest of this teaching talking about what that means. I've hesitated to say too much about what it is we're undoing. Anytime we're learning a thing, experiencing a thing, we are often challenging something we thought we knew already. Just like this one verse challenges the preconception that logos and sarks, that word and flesh have nothing to do with one another. This entire teaching focus on new creation in the heavens, it is itself a bit of a deconstruction and a reconstruction about what God is up to in the scriptures. So, I'll rehash for you what I was given when I grew up in church. And this will sound familiar to some of you. And there's always like a a bit of truth in all of these different understandings of God and Christ and resurrection and the gospel, but often not the fullness of the picture. Sometimes, though, it's it's quite off base in a way that can be dangerous or destructive. So here's what I was given. I said this last week, and I'll keep saying it over and over so that you understand what it is we are working with here. Uh, the goal of the Christian life, as I came to understand it, from the age of like seven, when I first remember learning about it in VBS, until, I don't know, still, if I'm being honest, because this stuff is deeply ingrained. The goal of the Christian life was to get saved. And to get saved or accept Jesus into your heart was itself principally a spiritual experience. Interacting with the Holy Spirit and with our soul, something happens and somehow we are saved from, usually it was saved from. Saved from hell or saved from destruction or saved from sin or saved from sarks, from the flesh. Now, The prize, if you sort of won the game that was being played here, was that upon death, you were able to escape. You were able to leave this shell, this prison, this body, this flesh, and your soul was freed to go to heaven. And there, you would spend eternity 
that language of eternity or forever after or everlasting life, you would spend your soul in heaven with God and Christ and the angels and all the rest of us. That should sound familiar to a lot of us here. That that is kind of the pitch of what we might have absorbed as the Christian message. There is a problem. Principally, that's not what the Bible says. And everyone pulls out their Q&A cards and starts to write down questions right now. Uh, the Bible is concerned about something else. And the Gospels themselves tell a different story. One writer I've been reading a lot this last week says, actually... Every writer I've been reading this week says that nowhere in the Bible does it say that our souls are to spend eternity with God in heaven. That heaven is our ultimate home. Now that itself should sound a little bit scandalous and so I'm going to leave it there because I still want you to listen to me for the next little bit. Right? Okay. Uh, so let's pull up the next one here, Paul. I want to tell you about the secret, secret, super secret knowledge club. I don't know if you've heard of it, but you might want to be a part of it. There was at the time in the early church, lots of these super secret knowledge clubs or wisdom cults. And they sort of spring directly out of this idea that spirit and flesh do not belong together. The problem was in Christianity, you just heard from John 1:14 that in Christ, logos and sarks are brought together. And that the, that presence of God in the world is the marriage of those two realities. And so these early Christians are trying to reckon with what they've received in their own culture, namely this kind of dualistic thinking that spirit is good and flesh is bad, right? So that's the seedbed for understanding in the world. But then they are given this story that God is made manifest in human form, in flesh and blood, in needs and desires and like sweat and excrement and needs to eat and like all of that. That is the presence of God in the world. And yet over here is this foundational belief that spirit and flesh do not belong together. So they begin to try and figure out how to resolve this tension. How do you resolve the tension of Christ? And they come up with all kinds of different answers. So one of the answers is Christ is just this really cool dude. And that's about all there is to him. This good teacher, uh, all human, all flesh, all sarks. The other way, the more common way, and I, I would say the way that the church still often thinks about the Christ is as disembodied spirit or as all logos. So the super secret knowledge club, that's the fancy word for the Gnostics. Gnostics, the word gnosis is the word for knowledge. Gnosticism is an early Christian heresy that says that Jesus or God, that is all spirit. And anything that is not spirit is just this like temporary shell of a thing. There it is again. There's the dualism. That the God of the Old Testament was a lesser God and the God of the New Testament made known in Christ is the true God. And so, right, all of, when you needed to, to resolve a tension that is left in our story given to us from God, you start to get in some really dangerous territories. And so they would have these little gatherings and they would whisper together about the secret knowledge that they were sharing with one another. And at some point in death, they would be free. Free from the constraints and limitations of bodily existence to be with God in a pure way. It was heresy then, and it is heresy now. It goes by lots of other names to the early church, but we could just call it the super secret knowledge club. And it's one that you can feel sometimes 
people who are trying to follow Christ, wanting to be a part of, to resolve the tension that is Jesus the Christ. Fully God and fully human is the way the tradition gives it to us, full of the tensions inherent therein. Next slide. I'm really scared to talk about these. Base reality, ancestor simulations, and externalized human consciousness. <laughs> Partly because I know who's in the room. And so who knows what like base reality and ancestor simulations are? Oh, good. I can just make this up and no one will know. Ian, I'm sure, or like Brian, I definitely thought that you would be right on this, but you probably are. This sort of uh, like, okay. I've been looking, you don't have to look very far for where Gnosticism or the super secret knowledge club is at play now today. And turns out it's everywhere. Turns out it is again still sort of the bedrock foundation of our existence. Place that I find it most often is in the ideology that emanates out from Silicon Valley, which we are learning right now encompasses our whole lives. Like who's got a smartphone? Who's on social media? Who lives inside zeros and ones? Computer code that now not only helps like enhance life, but is now dictating and structuring life. So these are ideas that kind of come to us out of this technology revolution we are in the middle of right now that say, oh, somebody's going to go fact check me and I'm going to get this all wrong. But it's okay. I'll get close. Uh, the idea around some of the leading experts in like emerging technologies, things that are truly driving our lives right now. So names like Elon Musk, right? SpaceX, uh, these huge names, people who have multiple billions of dollars and control lots of our attention are committed to certain kinds of beliefs that are Gnostic, particularly that consciousness can be freed from bodily limitation. So a lot of the research that like certain spun off groups inside of Google are doing or around how to extend human life or even how to transcend human life, how to remove our whatever we are made of. And what we are made of in this story is our thoughts, is our, our, our brain, our, our memories. And if we can just get those out of the shell and somewhere else, then they can continue on in perpetuity. It sounds a lot like the soul or a lot like just the logos. How do we get the logos out of the sarks? There's also this idea that we aren't actually living in true reality, but we are living in some kind of simulation that uh, is being played out for us like the Matrix. That sounds terrible. And every time I think about it, my brain starts to bleed a little bit. Uh, and so base reality would be the reality at like its bedrock and that we are not in fact there. A lot of these folks would say that we live in some kind of uh, shadow world. This idea of externalized human consciousness is that we can get this that makes us us out of this shell. And we can put it somewhere else. We can store it in a computer. We can upload it into someone else. If this sounds strange to you, it is everywhere. It is an animating ideology underneath the surface. That what limits us as humans, what limits us as the earth, the carrying capacity of creation, the limits that our bodies have before we die, all of those things, 
this group is working hard to push past. And underneath it all is this idea that embodied reality is stifling our advancement. And that is a super secret knowledge club. Except for in this one, you have to have a certain amount of money to get in. But it's there all the same. Next slide. I want you to remember this. If you need to write it down, write it down. I carry this with me often. It's this uh, pithy little phrase that helps me understand what it means to live inside of paradox. Forcing a choice where God has left attention is the beginning of all heresies. When we started off talking about the tension between flesh and spirit, between logos and sarks, there is always the temptation to divide the two, to force a choice. But our, our faith, the bedrock of the story we are telling about God's action in the world through Jesus the Christ is itself full of tension and paradox. That life comes through death. That strength is exhibited in weakness. That the last should be first. That the evidence of God made manifest in the world is in Jesus the Christ who is this balancing of tensions of humanity and divinity. So, forcing a choice where God has left attention is the beginning of all heresies. Next slide. Uh, we have at the Connections desk a new book every once in a while when we do different teaching focuses. We have books that we share with you that have been influential in what we're talking about together. And uh, I want to introduce you to uh, a, an agrarian poet named Wendell Berry. If you don't know Wendell Berry's work, you are in for a treat. This it, it is brilliant. And this book is called The Art of the Commonplace. It is 21 essays on a wide-ranging set of interests. But he has an essay in here called The Body and the Earth that I've been reading and rereading this week. And uh, I want to read you a section of it because Barry talks about this, this marriage that our dualistic thinking always is trying to undo, always trying to divorce. See if this sounds familiar. The separation of the soul from the body and from the world is no disease of the fringe, no aberration, but it is a fracture that runs through the mentality of institutional religion like a geological fault. By the way, now that we're, I'm from California, now that I live here, I know what it means to have a geological fault. And what happens when none of that tension is released here, right? If, if it doesn't shake, but it just holds, that seems to be what is the ingredients needed for a really destructive event. So there's a fault running through the center, Barry says, of our faith. And it is this separation of the soul from the body and from the world. This rift in the mentality of religion continues to characterize the modern mind, no matter how secular or how worldly it becomes, which is the point of this conversation on externalized consciousness or simulations and base reality is that even if you have nothing to do with religion, this same kind of thinking is still sort of a bedrock belief. He says, but I've not stated my point exactly enough. This rift is not like a geological fault. It 
is a geological fault. It is a flaw in the mind that runs inevitably into the earth. Thought affects and afflicts substance, neither by intention nor by accident, but because occurring in the creation that is unified and whole, it must. There is no help for it. The soul in its loneliness hopes only for salvation. And yet, what is the burden of the Bible, if not a sense of the mutuality of influence, rising out of an essential unity among soul and body and community and world? These are all the works of God. And it is therefore the work of virtue to make or restore harmony among them. The world is certainly thought of as a place of spiritual trial, but it is also the confluence of soul and body, word and flesh, where thoughts must become deeds, where goodness must be enacted. This is the great meeting place, the narrow passage where spirit and flesh, word and world pass into each other. Now this line, the Bible's aim, as Barry reads it and as I read it, and as I hope you read it, is not the freeing of the spirit from the world. The Bible is the handbook of their interaction. Come on. The Bible is the handbook of their interaction. It says they can't be divided, that their mutuality in their unity is inescapable. And it's not reconciled in division, but in harmony. Here's the thing. Take that line. The, the Bible's aim, as we read it, is not is not the freeing of the spirit of the world. It's the handbook of the interactions. Take that line and then go back and just read your Bible. Like read the whole thing if you can cover to cover. Just go back and read one of Paul's letters to the early church and you will see, you will read and you will hear this playing out. I don't know how this happened that we got so far off course over time when we would pick up our scriptures and read them, but this is the story that God has been telling. So let's go after it together. Next slide. This is how we often think about heaven and earth. Heavens are up there. Earth is down here. It's a perfect little divide. Good is up high. Bad is down low. That's how the thing works. My head is better than my feet. I'm assuming that's why we're made this way, right? That is the division. That is the old way of thinking. So go to the next one because I want us to think about it this way just to help us a little bit get out of this dualistic thinking. Up is good. Down is bad. So let's just put them side to side. There are the heavens and there is the earth and there is something between these. And that between space is what we're going to talk about today. Next slide. The action is what is happening right here. The Bible is the handbook of their, their interaction. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk today about what we mean by heaven, but suffice it to say, we are not talking about a disembodied reality up in the clouds. When we say heaven in the Bible, what we mean is shorthand for the space, the realm where God's will is done. What God intends and what happens, that there is no difference between those. Heaven is the reality of shalom. Or of peace. And so wherever things are as God intends them to be, that is the foretaste of heaven. So, what is between these two spaces? All right, now it's time to go through. Now it's time to move. Next slide. The first one is creation. The interaction between the heavens and the earth. It's really clear and really plain and we've talked about it. I've only been here a year and we've talked about Genesis 1 at least a hundred times. So 
by now this should be a bit old hat, but if you need a refresher, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Hashemayim ha'eretz, the heavens and the earth. That's how the story begins. And then God speaks and God creates day one, day two, day three, day four, five, six. And then on the seventh day, God rests. In this story of creation, one of the ways you could understand it is that God is building a cosmic temple. Creation is itself a cosmic temple so that God would have a home. And the language of resting is the language of taking up residence in this creation. So that wherever God is would also exist wherever we are. And that language of coming to rest is setting up an outpost for heaven on earth. It's so that God's rule and reign would be with the people. That was the intention for creation. That the whole thing would speak to God's glory. So God creates with this effortlessness, this world, this created order, the heavens and the earth, and then God inhabits it. That is the good creation. That is what God calls tov or very tov or very good. Now it doesn't stay that way, right? A crack begins to form in the whole center of things, the third and fourth chapter, and it spins off. Creation, it becomes sort of unwound. It undoes itself. It slips back into chaos. That's the story of the early chapters in Genesis. Now, we're going to trace this idea of the home or the dwelling place of God together. So next slide. The next place where we find the dwelling of God is in the Mishkan. The book of Exodus is sort of telling one story, but often we miss that one story because the story of the plagues and the deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh feels like the action movie we really love. And the second half of Exodus is like an owner's manual for how to put together a piece of Ikea furniture. And so it's like miserable to read. But starting at Exodus 25, you get to this section where God tells Moses how to build the Mishkan or the tabernacle. And you get all of these chapters explaining how to do it. All of the construction manual. And it is like really, really detailed. Then you have the interruption with the golden calf. And then you have the restoration of the covenant. And then you have the building of the tabernacle. The second half of the book of Exodus is, is deeply concerned with the Mishkan. The word Mishkan has inside of it Shekan or Shekinah. Do you know that word? The Shekinah is the presence of God. And so part of what, yes, Shekinah glory. And those two words belong together too. That the presence of God is wherever the glory of God is. The word for glory is this word kavod. And the word kavod means heaviness or substance or weight. Now when John tells a story about Jesus, he says that there is the location of God's glory. If you have seen the Christ, you've seen the glory of God. So, Creation has begun to spin out of control and there is seems to be no place where Eden is still pure. Eden is still intact. It's in tatters. And so God calls the people together and says, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And you are going to build for me a mishkan, a tabernacle. And my presence will reside there and I will go with you. You are going to build in the wilderness a little bitty Eden, a little garden. 
Now, it takes God just a few verses and just a few days and only speech. It takes the book of Exodus chapters and multiple, multiple people, a whole nation it takes to build this tent in the wilderness. Because to build a home for God is tough work for us. But it is easy work for God. So if you haven't, let me read for you a couple of sections. It says in chapter 24, Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day he called out to Moses. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for how long? For 40 days, for 40 nights. In case it's not clear that God has always been telling the same story, this is the same amount of time that Jesus spends in the wild places. And the flood. It's this story that's being told over and over again. Now you get the whole construction. Let's go to the end. I need to take a breath before I read Exodus 40 for you because this is like the crescendo of this first movement in the scriptures and I don't want to move through it too fast. So let's settle. Let's take a breath. Chapter after chapter, the people are told how to build the home for God in the wild places. And then this disruption. And then chapter after chapter is they're building the home for God in the wild places. And then the very end of the book of Exodus, you get this. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. And it says, and so Moses finished the work. That is the language of Genesis On the seventh day, God rested because on that day, God finished the work. Moses is helping God to create a home in the midst of the wild places. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in the cloud by night before the eyes of all of Israel at each stage of their journey. It is right there. If the point was to see God, to experience God, and they had been locked in slavery, then finally, after all of this effort, they have a place where they can see the glory of the Lord. It emanates out from this place. Now, the story, if you keep reading backwards in Exodus about what God's people were supposed to be, the glory of the Lord exists in their midst so that it might radiate outward from their midst. It is always put there so that they can steward it into the rest of creation. Originally, God's home was everything, was the created order. Now, let's just try and and be with the presence of God in this intimate space. But never so it would stay there, but so it would move out from there. Next slide. If you move forward, you get to a really fancy version of the tabernacle, which is known as the temple. David tries to build it, which is sort of the famous king of Israel, but can't because he's got too much blood on his hands from all of the killing he does. So David's son Solomon gets to build the temple. And so they build this very, very fancy home for God. 
And the danger in building a home for God is that you start to think that God actually lives there, right? That God does not exist everywhere, but only in this place. Even at the dedication of the temple, you get this language, this hedging against the danger of God having a home. Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Regard your servant's prayer and his plea, O Lord my God, heeding the cry and prayer of your servants as we pray today. But Solomon knows that if nothing else, God's name shall be here. That way, whenever they need to pray, they can go and they can say, hear the plea of your servants and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Oh, here in heaven, your dwelling place, heed and forgive. The temple is almost like a like one side of a walkie talkie, where if we're not sure how to get to God, at least we know where we can pick up one side of the receiver and speak and God might hear. It's not going to just be God's presence here, but at least here. They build the temple in Jerusalem on a high mountain so that it is closer to the connection points between the heaven and the earth. It becomes known as the navel of creation over time. Now, an entire religion is built up around the temple. Sacrificial systems are built up around the temple. Priestly orders, clergy, taxes, economies, everything. This happens here. So... A little bit later in Israel's story, when they are ransacked by outsiders and they are sent into exile, the temple is destroyed. It is burned to the ground. This is understood as punishment for idolatry and moving away from God's story into their own story. But this presents a problem. When the temple is destroyed, it's not just the temple that is destroyed. It is the connection between the heavens and the earth. And we are without hope if there is not a connection between God's space and our space. And so Israel goes through this existential crisis moment. Is God gone? Are we alone? Have you felt that? You pick up the same phone, the same walkie-talkie, and speak, and nothing, nothing. Is the connection severed? Some of you, when you come here week after week, it's to find that connection. The hope that somehow what we do in this space is making it possible for you to commune with God. You're partly here because you like one another, right? We all like one another. But more you are here because you believe that God is somehow present here in our midst. And somehow the work we do together brings those two realms of reality closer together. So when the temple is destroyed, the connection is severed. Now, the prophets know that the tabernacle and the temple were signs and were symbols. And even when the people are in exile, they have words of comfort and of hope. And so Isaiah says things like this. For the Lord will comfort Zion, will comfort all of her waste places, and will make her wilderness like like Eden. Her desert like the garden 
of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Ezekiel. The land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. The waste and desolate and ruined towns are now inhabited and fortified. In the midst of the worst story, in the worst of places where God seems to be absent, the prophets say that is not true. God has not left you alone. God was never just in that temple. God was never just in this church. God has always been between all the connections between heaven and earth. The heavens can't even hold God. The highest heavens can't even hold God. This beautiful room can't even hold God. But God will spring up from the desolate places a garden again. So, when the writer of John's gospel begins to speak... In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt is the word for Mishkan to tabernacle. God's presence is back decisively in this person. And the connection between the heavens and the earth is found in Christ. This is the fancy shorthand for Christ, Cairo. It's the Greek words, which is why when you see X for Xmas, that actually means Christmas. So it's okay. No big deal. That's for another sermon. Let me sit with this for just a second. The meeting place of heaven and earth is in Jesus the Christ. The meeting place between the heavens and the earth, between spirit and flesh, is in Jesus the Christ. Known to us in particularity, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee, with mother and brothers and father and vocation, the Christ, the Messiah. This longed for hope that moves with the people of Christ into the future. So when we take on the label of Christian, we are saying that somehow we exist with Christ at the meeting of the heavens and the earth, which is where we go next. This is shorthand for church, ecclesia, because that is where we find ourselves. Paul, as he has the task of explaining the Christ event to these early Jewish followers and then Gentile followers in his letters, makes this connection. That the gathered group of believers, those who gather under the name of Christ, who find themselves in Jesus' story or the Jesus way, that somehow they become the connection. In one point, Paul says that, that you are together like the body of Christ. There's that language again. But bodies are supposed to be bad. Well, not in this story. Later on in another letter, Paul says that you are being built up. 
according to a plan that is mysterious and has been veiled throughout time, but is now being revealed. With Christ as the cornerstone and you as parts being built together into the temple of God. We could say it with a little more precision. And we could draw it with a little more precision. Just in case we're wondering what our task, what our calling really is. I knew this week as I was studying that this is where the scriptures were building to. It wasn't like it was a surprise to me when I got to this part of the story and thought, Paul, what? It's us? We get to be this thing? Like I, I knew that's where, and every time it is overwhelming because, because you and I both know that there are times where we pick up the receiver and nothing is on the other end. Or we see the world like picking up the receiver, wondering. And to feel called to be the people that stand between, that mediate the presence of God in the world, that we are the kind of people that can live in a way, pray in a way. We would say, as in heaven, so also on earth. That is our task. That is our vocation. It is insane. And yet, that seems to be the story that's being told. Okay. I want to read for you just a little bit of scripture. I want you to hear how Paul says it. This is from 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3 and a little forward. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Whereas before, God's revelation was through the scriptures, through the Torah would be the way Paul would say it, through those early books of the Hebrew scriptures, you are now the letter. You are now the Torah. You are the scriptures that make manifest God's presence in the world. You. You. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but competence is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. A little later on, since then we have such hope we act with great boldness. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, his veil lays over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is in the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom in all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as through a reflected in a mirror 
being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory into another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Do you hear what he's saying? If for the whole story we are craving, and we are craving to see the glory of God, the weightiness, the substance of God, then somehow when we embed ourselves in the story of Jesus the Christ, we then move from glory to glory. And when we see one another, it is that glory reflected back. Now this can lead toward pride, can lead toward ego and narcissism. So every time Paul tells the story, he then undercuts it a little bit by saying like, this is not of us, this is of Christ, so that we wouldn't brag. locates this glory in the body. Now, when we talk about sin, we've said that sin is that which separates us or alienates us from all of these connected points. What Wendell Berry calls our mutuality or our unity. What the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures called the oneness. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is echad, the Lord is one. Or what Jesus says and says that they may be one, united and unified. Sin is that which makes that untrue, which breaks it apart, which makes animosity exist between us, animosity exists between us and God, between us and creation. If you should feel that right now, every day there's more of creation that is disappearing. More of it that we are using in a way that is not honoring. Our own bodies, our own selves. Everything is separated, divorced from everything else. This is our estrangement. And this is the condition of the world. And so, what God is doing in Christ, and the word became flesh, what God is doing in us, passing from glory to glory, is restoring the connections, binding us back together. When Paul tells the story of Jesus' work in the world, he says the biggest surprise is that it extends all the way to the Gentiles or to people who didn't know they were inside of God's story. I don't know why that's a surprise to those people back then or why it's a surprise to us now because God has always been about moving past the boundaries we make. has always been about God's entire creation belonging to God. But that seems to be the mystery they hit up against. If you look a little bit later in Ephesians, Paul does it again. Ephesians 2, it says, For we are what he has made, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Our shalom in the flesh, in the sarks, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one unified new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. Now we have access to one spirit in the father. And here it is. You heard it a minute ago. Saints and citizens, we are also members of the household of God, 
built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure joins together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling house for God, into the home of the divine. If this isn't the most terrifying and good news you've heard this morning, then I'm not sure we are paying attention. Together joined and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. Pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And there it is again, Exodus 40. There's the language of the Mishkan or the tabernacle. I pray that you may have power to comprehend and understand with all the saints what is the breadth and depth and height and length measuring out The tabernacle, it takes chapter after chapter to build the thing and you are being built into the thing so that you may be filled with the fullness of God so that the glory, the Shekinah, might find a home in the world. That is our calling. Jesus says this way, where two or more are gathered And I've counted this morning, and there are more than two here. Where two or more are gathered, I am there also. God is present in the midst of God's people. The rabbis tell a similar version of this same quote. It says where where two or more are reading the Torah, where two or more are engaged in the scripture, the Shekinah rests between them. So I will say now that the Shekinah rests between us here now. This is not to give us a sense of ego or a sense of one-upsmanship. It is to understand our sacred calling as the gathered people of God. God enters into the broken places where the crack runs through everything, sets up an outpost for heaven in the wild places, and there brings justice and healing and mercy and grace, brings the goods of heaven to the earth. And we are called. We are gathered under this story to be a home for the divine always called to these places not so that we would cloister and not so that we would build thick walls and not so that we would keep people out but so that glory cavode heaviness and substance all the justice and mercy of god would move outward from here when genesis talks about the garden and talks about the rivers that flow the rivers they flow outward 
They bring that life out from them. So I don't know where you are in your life. Each of us are uniquely embedded in a different part of this created order. But I do know what your calling is in that space, which is to bring heaven close. To make the God of rain, the reign of God more real in your sphere. Whether that's family or whether that's work, whether that's the way that you take the trash out or the way that you greet your neighbor, the way that you consume your food, the way you spend your money or give your money, that everything matters if this is true. God is not waiting to burn all of this up and then help us to escape the thing. God has called us right into the midst of the world, right into the midst of the action. It is why when the church is doing her job, accepting the vocation, where there is suffering, God's people are there. Where there is injustice, God's people are there. Where there's pain, where there's heartache, where there is need, God's people are there. Because that's where we think Christ is. A lot of the time, most days, I'm not sure I believe this is true. It is too much. The calling feels too high. But then I get together with you, and I think maybe, maybe this is true. Maybe we are actually called to be God's home in the world. So may you take up this calling this vocation. May you hold it with all seriousness. May you feel that Christ has already done the work, has defeated everything that holds us apart and has brought us back into unity, created a garden in our midst called the church. Would you pray with me? God, what I have said in 30 or 40 minutes does not quite even barely scratch the surface of what you are telling us in this story given in the scriptures. That we belong to you and we have always belonged to you, but not just us, but everything, all of creation. It is yours and your intentions for it. That glory would be present in our lives and in the places where we go. That we would know what justice is. That we would know what righteousness is. That we would know what still breaks the world apart. 
so that we might be the outpost for your kingdom and that we might carry heaven to earth. You are our only hope and you've called us to be the hope found in the world. So we take up this vocation with trembling hands but also outstretched arms. In the strong name of Amen.